Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handle them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fricoso. Welcome to the show. Today, I'm joined by comedian and filmmaker W. Kamau Bell. Kamau first came on our show back in 2016. Since then, He's moved a little bit away from stand-up comedy and into documentary filmmaking. He's the creator and host of a great program on CNN called United Shades of America. The premise of the show is simple enough. In each episode, Kamau travels to a different part of the country to sit with a particular issue inside that region. He's gone to the South to speak with the Ku Klux Klan. He's visited inmates in the San Quentin prison, a Muslim community in Michigan, indigenous people in the Dakotas. As Kamau says, he's focused on having these difficult but necessary conversations, even when we may not want to have them. And it's that mission statement that brought Kamau to his latest project. We need to talk about Cosby, a four-part docuseries that recently premiered on Showtime. Here's a clip from the trailer. Do not edit this. A lot of people knew. Because you can't do what he did unless you have other people supporting what you're doing. Spanish fly, the girl would drink it and hello, America. Bill Cosby had been one of my heroes. I'm a black man, stand-up comic. I was born in the 70s. But this... More trouble for Bill Cosby. The accusations just keep coming in. This was complicated. 
how do we talk about Bill Cosby? Uh-uh. It's complex, Kamal, you know? <sighs> Bill Cosby was our teacher. Kind of center of morality all throughout his career. Made my grandmother laugh, made everybody in the house laugh. You can't speak about black America in the 20th century and not talk about Bill Cosby. Thank you. Bill Cosby has been leaving breadcrumbs. It's my barbecue sauce. That's <laughs> people on and they get all huggy-buggy. He was talking about how to drug women. Beautiful women. They were lined up outside of his dressing room. What did you think was going on? He looked at me and he said, fooled him again. You don't often learn that your heroes the worst sorts of villains. This is just a sad day in the history of black culture. It was just like, no, not Bill Cosby. It's tough being a sister saying, you know, you know it scares me? You know now. I feel like I have to have this discussion. We thought we knew Cosby. We never knew Cosby. That was from We Need to Talk About Cosby which is now available to stream on Showtime. To his credit, Kamau does a skillful job of sitting with the totality of Cosby, his descent from America's dad to alleged sexual predator. Kamau, as you probably heard in that clip, grew up idolizing Cosby. He said recently in an interview, when I watched him, especially on his shows aimed at kids like Fat Albert, Picture Pages, and The Electric Company, I saw a black man who wanted me to be smart, like he was. He wanted me to be successful, like he was. He wanted me to be a good person, like I thought he was. And much of the docuseries shows comedians, journalists, and survivors reckoning with both Cosby's singular career and the alleged abhorrent crimes. Kamau and I get into all of this in our episode, but before we jump in, I want to offer a mild warning. Given that Cosby is at the center of this conversation, we do speak of sexual assault and the various accusations made against him. So I just want to make sure to mention that at the top if you do decide to join us, and I hope you do. I think you'll find Kamau's clear-headed, empathetic approach to his work refreshing and deeply moving. Kamau believes, as I do, especially in thinking about our recent episode with Dr. James Whitfield, that we can't afford to lose our history, no matter how painful it may be. So today, on this episode, we dive headfirst into that history to have a conversation we maybe don't want to have, but probably need to. This is W. Kamau Bell. W. Kamau Bell, welcome back. This is your fifth time on the show. This is my fifth time? Your fifth. Wow. I'm glad you're back. I want to begin in 2012. You have a show on FX, executive produced by Chris Rock. It's called Totally Biased with W. Kamau Bell. As the program gets picked up, the press starts doing interviews with you. And one question they repeatedly ask is, who were your favorite stand-up comics when you were growing up? (laughs) 
And that was a difficult question for you to answer, wasn't it? Yeah, even back then, which is funny to see that, you know, that's before the survivors all came forward, but there was already enough stories. And it's funny, it's hard to even remember that time of Bill Cosby being accused of rape and sexual assault, that it was just clear that I couldn't just be like, oh, Bill Cosby and Eddie Murphy, next question. So I started to say, Eddie Murphy and the artist formerly known as Bill Cosby, which was my way of sort of like trying to say, you get what I'm saying here? I don't really want to talk about this anymore. But because it felt like if I didn't say Bill Cosby, it would be weird to be a black man of my age and not mention Bill Cosby as an influence. And if I did say Bill Cosby and just sort of let his name hang in the air, then it, then it felt like I was turning my back on the survivors. Now, looking back, it's the most mealy mouth support that anybody could almost pretend to offer. But it was I, that was how I handled it at the time. But I think in that answer is me sort of going like, how do we talk about Bill Cosby? How did you go from a comic saying, I don't really want to talk about this anymore to we need to talk about this and I'm going to devote four years of my life to talking about it? You know, I'm sort of following the Bill Cosby case like everybody else. I'm sort of having these conversations with friends and family and seeing conversations happen and also building a career where I'm specializing in difficult conversations and being known to have difficult conversations. And I end up at the offices of Boardwalk Pictures and I was talking to my agent. This is so Hollywood. And I was like, I really like those guys. Like, I, I wish they could make the comedy documentaries or I have idea. I wonder if they would make comedy documentaries and I could be involved in it. And he was like, we represent them. And I was like, oh, oh I didn't like, I don't know who my agent represents. And I end up in an office with them and their office is talking about it. Just talking about a, a general conversation about comedy documentaries. In that conversation, Andrew Freed, it's Andrew Freed and Jordy Wynn. Andrew says, could you make a comedy documentary about a comedian that's fallen? Could you celebrate the work of a comedian who who has fallen? And when you say that, you're talking about a few comedians and one, the preeminent one is Bill Cosby. And my memory is that I responded, well, if you did that, you'd have to do it like O.J. Simpson made in America style, the Ezra Edelman documentary about O.J. Simpson, where you look at the person's life, their career and America and their crimes and all you'd have to do all of it at once. Andrew tells me, and I forgot this, that I like the next day I sent him a super long email laying the whole thing out. <laughs> like, I like, was just like, I couldn't stop thinking about it. And that's how we, that's how it started. It was not a pitch. It was just the people coming together. What did the email sound like? How you would trace his career. Very early, I realized as much as I think chronology is a bad way to tell a story. Very early, I realized that because he has over a 50 year career in show business, and so many people come into it at different points that you sort of have to go chronologically just to go, this is where this guy came from. So you don't think he was always Dr. Huxtable or, or if you're young, you don't always think he was this cranky granddad who was accused of these crimes. And so it felt like a big part of what I do is always education. And then once you look back over his career, you can sort of break it into eras, the the climb to success, which is pretty short. He sort of takes off quickly trying to figure out where he lies in show business, which is like the 70s into the 80s and then the Cosby show and post Cosby show. So it breaks up in sort of ways that make sense. And then once you start to look at the assaults, which I hadn't looked at, you realize they go back to the early days of his career, which I think most people don't realize. They think it's something that maybe happened in the Cosby show era, but they go back to the early days of his career. And so and then it's like how you would sort of weave those stories together. So that was the email was a lot about that and about how it's also what it tells us about America. You said you hadn't looked at the assaults. When did you first sit with them? 
I hadn't looked into the assaults. I was like a lot of people where you're watching the news and there's another woman who says Bill Cosby assaulted me. And maybe I watch the whole news clip. Maybe I just see the headline. Maybe I read the first paragraph of the article. Right. Very quickly, I sort of understood. And this is the tribute to the women in my life. My mom, uh, Janet Bell, my my wife, Melissa, my friend Martha, lots of women in my life who like had schooled me on sexual assault and were like, if a woman is going to come forward and say that a man raped her, sexually assaulted her, you should take her seriously. Like, that's not a thing that is easy to do. And it's not something that that women are going to do lightly. Doesn't mean that there aren't women who falsely accuse men, but those are statistically negligible when you're counting these things. It's not as it's not it's and it has happened and it is shitty, but it is not something that happens as often as people who defend rapists want to act like it happens. The idea being that, like, once I started to look at them and like really take the women's stories in. It was just clear that, like, this is deeper than I thought it was. I think those of us who even maybe believe the women early on, you sort of can classify it as like, oh, it's like 60 one night stands that went wrong. Not that that's a good thing, but you sort of put it in this sort of category of like, they probably all happened during the Cosby show. It's probably one night stands that went wrong. It was, But then when you look into it, you find that he knew some of these women for years. He really worked hard to get them into to be in their lives, to really tell them he was going to give them success and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, and as one of the women in the documentary says, he worked as hard at his predation as he did at his career. You mentioned Melissa and Janet, your mother. And I think one of the early criticisms of the documentary is that this is a story about a man who has a routine pattern of assaulting women, and it's directed and made by a man. KB in Complex wrote, Hearing the violence against these women was infuriating, and I felt so much empathy for these women who decided to share their stories so bravely. As I watched, I started to ask myself, as I'm sure others will, why is a man tackling this documentary? Why at the center of this body of art that so vulnerably uplifts these women do we now need to talk about Cosby? How have you personally wrestled with that question in the last three to four years? And then on the production end, how did it inform the diversity of talent behind the scenes? And the environment I know you created. I think I certainly understand, like, this doc could be made by anybody because Bill Cosby's presence is so outside in show business that we, you know, that's why this is such a hard thing to struggle with is because there are, like, Andrew Freed is a white man around the same age as me, and he also loved the Cosby show. So it's like, but it's going to be feel differently if a white man makes it. Once I decided to make it and once it became clear that we weren't going to get a wide range of sort of other, like, A-list talent to talk about it, not that I'm A-list, but we weren't going to get A-list talent, I really wanted to then own the perspective of like, I am a man, I'm a black man, I was born in the 70s, I'm a, I'm a stand-up comic. So this is all coming through that lens. So it's not like I'm trying to hide it and act like this doc is being directed by the invisible hand of show business. So, and because I'm, I'm saying that out loud, I think it's fair for someone to go, I don't want to hear a man talk about this. I don't want to hear a man's, that's totally fair. Not going to say that that means anything about you other than, yeah, don't, I get why you would say this is not how I want to take this in because these issues are super thorny. Now, once I've decided to do it, all I can do is handle it as sensitively and with as much good humor as I can and is, and do the homework. And the project is staffed, if not mostly by women, which I think it is mostly by women. There's just, you know, Katie King is our showrunner. Geraldine Porris is our co-EP. Kelly Rafferty is a consulting producer. 
the first time we ever talked about the creative, it, uh, it was with Geraldine Kelly and Jamila King, who's a journalist with BuzzFeed. Then she was with Mother Jones. The main editor who touched all the episodes is Jen Brooks, our archival producer, who's the person who makes sure that you can use those clips from the Cosby show that you're using, Emily Francesco. I'm not even patting myself in the back. I'm just saying that's the, the way it is. You can look at the names when they in the credits. And also Geraldine did most of the outreach to survivors. So it was not like I was calling these women and sort of like badgering them to be in it. It was a woman who was reaching out to them. So having said all that, I've heard from people who say, I'm glad a man is doing this because it's usually women who do this. But having said that, I don't begrudge anybody. The doc is not, it's, it's not a superhero movie. You can have problems with it. There's things that I wish we could have done more. There's things that if we had five hours, which we wanted to, we could have gone into deeper. There's ways in which it's clearly a man who's talking about rape culture. Some people find that to be helpful that a man is finally talking about rape culture. Some people go, oh, he didn't say the things that he's supposed to say or that that are the most helpful. And I I accept all that. What I think is interesting and the reason I brought this up, one, so that you could outline all the talented women who did work on this and who had integral roles on it. But it's very clear in watching the movie that you all created an environment where women were comfortable to come forward. In those moments, when women are sharing this with you, how do you hold that as a man and a father? Again, all the reps that I've done in United Shades has really prepared me. I mean, one of the most intimidating interviews I've ever done that I ever walked into is we did an episode in season two that was for, mostly about Standing Rock and Native American activism at Standing Rock. And we also filmed in the Pine Ridge Reservation. and while we were filming, somebody told us like, oh, you should talk to this family. They'd have a lot to say about life on the res and how America doesn't respect us here. Their son was just killed by gang violence. There's a wake at his house right now, at his family's house. I called them. They said, you can come over there. The show's only been in existence for one year. So likely these people don't know the show, but they're being told by a friend of theirs. Talk to this crew about your son passing away. So I walk into like a family, like, you know, not the wake, but like the family sort of eating food and talking about their dead family member who was killed by gang violence. And I was like, why am I going into this? Like, this is not something that I was trained to do. This is not something I, I'm a comedian. Like, why, why would they say I should go? And I remember walking into that and just being like, all right, just put one foot in front of the other, be clearly respectful and let them lead the way. And by the end of that conversation, we were laughing and and people clapped in the room, not because of something I necessarily said, but because of something that Vincent's mom has said. And it was just like, I was really transformed in that moment to go, if you could just go in and talk to people in a respectful way and let them know you can trust them and earn and, and understand that you have to earn their trust, you can get people open to open up and talk. And the other side of that is that a lot of the survivors said they would do the series once they realized I was doing the interviewing because they'd seen my work on United Shades. So... I understand saying, why would a man do this? But then I think at some point it's like, well, who's the man and what is his track record? You know, in the middle of episode two, Jelani Cobb of The New Yorker says, you don't often learn that your heroes are really the worst sorts of villains. And I was thinking in the process of interviewing Cosby as someone that you looked to as a hero growing up, how did you hold those two truths that he was your hero and he was becoming more and more of a villain the more you made this film? Well, I think at some point you realize he was my hero. He's not my hero anymore. And I think the thing you have to realize, and I think we all have to realize this, is that just because someone makes good work, it doesn't mean they're good. 
and good can be whatever you define personally as good. It doesn't have to be about criminal activity. I think, you know, <laughs> a lot of uh, white baby boomers are struggling with their love of Eric Clapton right now. <laughs> I thought, I thought Eric Clapton, Eric Clapton wrote Tears in Heaven. It's a song that connects me to loss in my life. And he wrote Layla and it's, and I love that song and blah, blah, blah. And also he did some racism in the seventies and he's anti-vax and he's also a COVID conspiracy theorist. He did some racism in the 70s. He did some racism in the 70s. It may, it may have been the late 60s. I don't remember the year, but he did some racism. He did some guitar work and he did some racism. So the idea being that, like, I'm sure there are people who are going to still listen to Eric Clapton's music and just sort of put the rest of it in a part of their mind where they don't worry about it. I think you see it with musicians a lot. I mean, it, it, and again, it doesn't be criminal activity. It could be that your favorite rapper wears a MAGA hat sometimes and you're like, ah. So I think we are used to separating the art from the artist. It just becomes a problem when you want other people to draw the same lines that you draw. So if somebody says, I don't want to listen to Eric Clapton because he did a racism and he's a COVID conspiracy theorist, and you go, that's dumb. This music is good. That's where the problem lies. But having said all that, so I can recognize that Bill Cosby himself is one of the great achievements in modern stand-up comedy, or in the, it's one of the great achievements in the history of stand-up comedy. And it was super inspirational to me as a young comedian. That doesn't mean that he's a good person is what I've learned. And it doesn't mean that I can't also confront these allegations that I believe. This documentary is trying to inspire conversation that has been happening behind closed doors, but not out in public. And it seems like you're trying to inspire people to have these conversations in front of people on the record. I think I'm also trying to inspire people to have conversations across maybe lines that they wouldn't normally have those conversations and not just have them in secret with their trusted friends in the group chat. When I came to this, it was about, can you separate the art from the artist? Then once he got out of prison, it became like, what can we learn from all this that can make the next generation safer? Not the next generation, the next potential victim of sexual assault or rape who's out there in the world right now, put them in a better position to have safety, justice, and healing. And right now, sexual assault and rape is still underreported. You know, many victims of sexual assault, you'd be like, why didn't you tell anybody? They did tell people. Those people told them not to tell anybody else. And that person didn't have to be as famous as Bill Cosby. It could be some just the dude in your neighborhood. And they went, why didn't you go to the cops? I did go to the cops. And the cops said it was just he said, she said. So it's like right now our system has failed full stop. Our justice system fails full stop regularly. But in this area, they're failing in a more dramatic and clear way. And only we don't only don't talk about it because we don't prioritize women's voices in this society. And then we specifically don't prioritize black women's voices and native women's voices and Latino women's voices and Asian women's voices. What do you think is preventing us from having these uncomfortable back and forth in public? The power structure of this country is still prioritizes sort of white male supremacy, not sort of the, the power structure of this country prioritizes white male supremacy. For me, one of the things about this, specifically in show business, is that the more diverse the power brokers become and the more the power brokers aren't just straight white men or men or along the gender spectrum and non-binary, the more that there's different, the more there's more Muslims and not just Christians or Jews and more that there's like a, a diversity of people, I believe that individuals' voices are more prioritized. That doesn't solve everything, but that's a part of it. And then I think it becomes a responsibility for those of us in power to make sure we are running a set and this is what we try to do in the United Shades, where I don't care if you're the lowest person on the call sheet, that if something happens, you have the ability to tell somebody, even if that person who did it is me, that you don't feel like you're going to be fired. And then it becomes my responsibility to make sure that everybody knows that I'm leading by example. It's funny you say that because one thing that I couldn't shake while watching, 
And it's something you're getting at here, which is in order for people to have open conversations, you need people in positions of power to come to the table and talk. And yet the very gatekeepers that many of women who have been assaulted are afraid won't believe them, like Cosby's friends, colleagues, comedians that were peers, or even comedians inspired by the work he did, they're absent from the film by and large. And, and instead, you feature veteran reporters, distinguished professors, and of course, the women who have bravely come forth after being abused by Cosby himself. And I wondered, how did you reckon with that absence? What do you make of it? Oh, I was more naive than I thought when I thought that this was like an easier conversation now that Cosby was in prison. So I thought once Cosby's in prison, his story's basically over. He's probably going to spend the rest of his life there or pass away in prison because he's very, very old. I thought we'd be able to have a more wide open conversation, but it just showed how his power still emanated through show business. And the thing I understood, because I had some conversations with people who said, no, I'm going to disappoint somebody who is in my audience or in my life, no matter what I say. What do you mean by that? So much of this is about representation and black people in this country. We have enough people in our communities who could be role models and international icons, but we don't all get equal access to become role models and international icons because of, again, system of white supremacy. So to some black people, Cosby's too valuable for us to lose. And what I'm saying in this film is like, we don't got to lose all of it if we confront all of it, if we deal with all of it. Like I said, some of the no's were like over a course of an hour. And I told him, I was like, look, as soon as you tell me no, I'm not going to hard sell you. So as soon as I get the no, I'm, I'm done. And you won't hear from me until I say, just so you know, this film is coming out. This is the thing, a part about this that I think is interesting. Trevor Noah said no. And I'm only saying that because he said he said no. He then had me on the show to talk about it, which to me is like, I saw you're engaging with the conversation. Yeah. So it's like, it puts too much pressure on the film to hold the entire span of the conversation. I really think the film can be table setting for the bigger productive conversations that people then can choose to engage with the way they want to engage with it. I get how third raily this conversation is for black people. And as much as I'm like, man, I really thought and I wished and I hoped when I look at the work, I'm like, man, we really pulled something off that I think nobody's ever done before. And I think there's something cool about the fact that it isn't rely on. It's not like a poster where it's just a list of A-list talent who maybe only had one soundbite that was worth it, which sometimes happens in documentaries. I want to ask you the question that you posed to people at the end of the film. You said, if an alien from another planet was to come to you and say, who is Bill Cosby? How would Kamau Bell in 2022 answer that? Kiernan Mayo has her answer that I'm sort of, that's the answer that felt the most solid to me, which is why I was at the end. And then I talk after that. So I feel like I would say to the alien, look, if you're going to understand America, there's two things you need to understand. America's history and present day of racism, specifically racism against black people. And you need to understand how America doesn't listen to women's voices and doesn't prioritize women's voices. And it's worse if you're not a white woman, if you're a woman of color or a black woman, an indigenous woman, a Latina woman, Asian woman. So those are two things you need to understand to understand America. And one good way to understand those two things is to, is to learn the story of Bill Cosby. We'll be right back after a quick break. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History, my podcast about the overlooked and the misunderstood. A couple of years ago, I wrote a book called Outliers. It was about exceptional people, 
the ones who operate at the outer edges of human performance. Outliers fascinate me. And last year, I discovered an outlier in the form of a community organization, Washington State's City of Bellevue. The city wanted to improve public safety by making their roads safer. So they created something that no one had ever built before, a platform that gave road users warnings of any dangers ahead in real time. How did they build it? By using a combination of technologies, the cellular vehicle-to-everything network, T-Mobile's 5G network, and 5G-connected cameras. People driving, bicycling, walking, running, can't forget people running, and people operating the transportation network now had a way to prevent crashes. It's been a huge success. The city of Bellevue earned first place in the community category at the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards, an event that celebrates T-Mobile customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of meaningful change. If you're a T-Mobile for Business customer and your team has, like the city of Bellevue, innovated something really, really cool, I encourage you to enter. It's also a great way for outliers to be recognized in front of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. Member, FDIC, Copyright 2024. J.P. Morgan, Chase & Co. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts. Part of the story of Bill Cosby, which I didn't know all of, and I'm reluctant to, to go vaguely positive here. Give credit. But I think it's important to do this. Yeah. Could you speak to his work with stunt workers? That was the key story that before I ever thought I could direct something like this, where I was like, if we don't tell this story, we're losing our history. So in the wake of all the women coming forward, I read an article, I think in Deadline, that said a filmmaker named Noni Robinson was working on a documentary about Bill Cosby's effect on the stunt industry. And as part of the documentary, she'd interviewed Bill Cosby for two hours, but now with all the accusations coming out, she was gonna cut that from the documentary. 
and didn't know what she was going to do with the documentary. Noni's doc apparently is still in production and is going to come out someday. So I think it, at last, I think it's called Breaking Bones, Breaking Barriers. And so one of the first people we reached out to was her for the film. The story is, is that Bill Cosby was on the set of I Spy. I Spy was the first TV show in Hollywood history where a black man and a white man were co-leads of the show. And that on the show, Bill Cosby had equal status. He wasn't playing like Robert Culp's manservant or valet. He was like, they were equal status agents, some sort of like spies, international spies. And apparently early on the first season of that show, so he's making Hollywood history, he sees a stuntman getting painted, a white stuntman getting painted black, not brown, black. And he asks what's happening. And they say, oh, that guy's here to do your stunt. And that's how we do it. We paint them black so they can do your stunt. And this, let's remember, this is color television, and yet they're painting this guy black. Bill Cosby apparently says something effective like, if you're going to do that, I'm not going to work on this show anymore. You need to find me a black stuntman. And this is his first TV show. He's made Hollywood history. It would be easy for him to go, okay, thanks for telling me. But he took a stand right then, and they went and found him very quickly, found him a black man of similar height and build and complexion as Bill Cosby. And that guy became Bill Cosby's stuntman for, like, his whole career. Black people in the stunt industry say that's the moment that the stunt industry got integrated. That moment from that act. So it's not like a bunch of people are doing a bunch of things. It's that moment from Bill Cosby. And when I read that article in Deadline, I was like, wait. If this documentary doesn't come out or we don't tell this story, we're losing our history. We can't afford, especially in these times of critical race theory being attacked all over the country and schools saying we want to only that you're not allowed to say slavery is bad <laughs> when you teach slavery. We can't afford to lose our history, even if it's hard to tell that story. That was one of the first stories that made me go sort of like if I was going to do a doc, I would tell that story. His work with black colleges. Yeah. Again, another example of this that I don't know if people know entirely about. Yeah. So he very quickly, once Bill Cosby starts making lots of money, he starts to, as they say, give it all away. And not just like sort of like low level philanthropy. One of the things he does is he gives Spellman, a black an HBCU that is a black women's college, $20 million, which at the time was the largest donation to any HBCU ever, maybe still. And so again, this is Bill Cosby trying to make the world a better place specifically for black women because it's at Spelman. But then the way you look at that, you go, or was he buying himself coverage? It's not a, it's not a math equation where you can go this plus this equals this. It's like, no, it all exists. You can't just dismiss that. Now Spelman has since given the endowment, the money back. So, and a lot of colleges I think have done that, but yeah, it's just another act of like how, com how complicated the story is to tell. And just by the fact that on the Cosby show, he wore college sweatshirts and HBCU sweatshirts and he then he created the spinoff A Different World about a fictional HBCU. A lot of black people of a certain generation around my age say I went to an HBCU because of Bill Cosby talking about HBCUs all the time or because of A Different World. Every white person of a certain age knows The Cosby Show. They didn't all watch A Different World, even though it was also a huge hit show. But black people, that show takes up a very special place in our hearts of a certain age. So I think we certainly could have done more there because I think Debbie Allen, who was the showrunner who really transformed A Different World into the show that people love. We mentioned her, but I, there's more we could have done there. You know, some stuff we just couldn't do because we didn't have access to people from his life. So some people said that have noticed that we didn't talk about his upbringing. And it was like, well, because we didn't have anybody from his life who would talk to us about it. And the only people who have written about it are people who now we can't trust because they were ignoring a lot of the other things. So I think it's like it was very clear to me that this documentary was like, oh, this is really about when America meets Bill Cosby, not when Bill Cosby was born. Now, of course, Bill Cosby is currently out of jail and. When your documentary came out, he happened to respond to it through his representative, 
Andrew Wyatt. Here's a quote from his statement. Mr. Cosby has spent more than 50 years standing with the excluded, made it possible for some to be included, standing with the disenfranchised and standing with those men and women who were denied respectful work because of race and gender. W. Kamau Bell is a PR hack, and Bill Cosby continues to be the target of numerous media that have, for too many years, distorted and omitted truths intentionally. You know, this thing could have been 10 hours long, so anything that is not in it is, for a lot of it, is like we didn't have time to get it in there. He's always said, I didn't do any of this. Not like this is misunderstood, or I did some of this, or... Uh, this part is true, but this part isn't true. He has said, I didn't do any of it. And I just don't, I and many other people, there's no way to believe that he didn't do any of this. And then the question becomes, well, how much needs to be true for it to be true enough? And so for me, it's like, after having sat down with these women, after having read the deposition, the unsealed deposition, where he says, I entered the area between permission and rejection, which to me is like, well, you just said you did it. I don't know how to like look at this any other way, but certainly that's that whole statement is in line with how Bill Cosby and his people have talked about this the whole time. And, I, you know, to think of the list of things that Bill Cosby could have called me, a PR hack seems pretty like, I can take that. That was not so bad. It was my birthday when that thing came out, so it was just a weird day overall. <laughs> like, I, I've had some memorable birthdays in my life. That was that, that one might be the most memorable. Moving forward, in Time Magazine, you, you have this quote. You write, this is bigger than Bill Cosby. America has a reputation for not listening to women who have been sexually assaulted. America has a history of allowing powerful men to take women as the spoils of their power. America has done an awful job of dealing with racism and rape. I sincerely hope that we can do a better job of dealing with those issues in the Bill Cosby conversation. I believe there is one more thing to learn from him, whether he wants us to or not. What do you think that is? I mean, you know, if we take Bill Cosby at his word, especially back in the early 70s when he was on Fat Albert and the Cosby Kids and Picture Pages and even on The Cosby Show, he said he wanted us to be good people. He said he wanted us to make good choices. He said he didn't want us to go to prison. He said he wanted us to, to not lie. So if I'm to take him at those lessons he taught me, then talking about what we now know to be true about Bill Cosby, what I now believe, is a part of that. Before we go... Since you started this project four years ago, I know you've had moments where you've said to yourself, I don't know if I can keep going. I don't know if I want to keep going. <laughs> but now that the series is out, are you glad you did it? I'm really proud of the work that's in here. I'm really proud of the work that me and the team put together. And the way in which people, for the most part, are engaging with the work, I feel like means that we accomplished something that we were trying to accomplish and getting people to have these conversations. And also, whatever difficulties I have and whatever pushback I'm getting, it doesn't compare to any of the survivors who have put decided to put themselves in this again. And they have been really great to me and say, here's what you're about to go through. Get ready for this. So I don't know how to be any other way. I've known you for five, six years now. As a human, as a father, as a husband... Are you all right? <laughs> it's funny how this is a question that I'm being, that it does, it's not in every interview I do, but it's in interviews like this where either I know the person interviewing me has known me for a while or from people who just know to ask that question. So I would say overwhelmingly the answer is yes, but it doesn't mean that I don't need to get all righter. <laughs> so like I would say that like, if this doc had never been made, I'm still a person who is living through a, a pandemic. I'm still a person who 
is struggling with who went through the Trump era and then there was a racial reckoning and now that racial reckoning is being erased. <laughs> I'm a black man who's supposed to talk about racism. Uh, I'm still a person who whose day job meant that I was flying in the midst of COVID pre-vaccine, uh, making television and was stressed out about it. And I'm still a person who lives in Northern California who remembers the day that we got out of bed and the sky was red because of the fires. And I feel like that day doesn't get enough credit when we talk about things of the last couple of years that have altered us forever. So I feel permanently altered by the last two years in so many ways for so many people. And I know that I'm at the one of the most privileged ends of that unrelenting thing because I'm not a frontline healthcare worker or an essential worker in a grocery store. So I also know that I don't normally talk about this stuff because I don't want to sound like the privileged Hollywood asshole who's like, it is hard to make entertainment. But yeah, this project was super personal and super deep and it changed me. And I always knew it was going to come with repercussions. And I just sort of sit here and, you know, much like Forrest Whitaker from the movie Ghost Dog, I imagine my worst defeat. And hopefully that helps me attain victory. To be fair, you're not a Hollywood asshole. You're a Bay Area asshole. You know, I know it's even worse. (laughs) Bay Area (laughs) asshole. Yes. So it's, it's a higher level. It's all true. And yet it did take its toll. And I'm grateful that you do have your wife, Melissa, your two kids, Mm -hmm. your incredible team that made this possible. I'm glad you have the infrastructure to do it because, you know, we are living in a time, as you say, of history being erased. And Mm -hmm. I think ultimately this documentary is about preserving and representing that history, even when it is uncomfortable to face. For sure. And as black people, that's been our job since we arrived on these shores to go, wait a minute, that's not true. That's not what's happening. Maybe some other people could help out now. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's also like, you know, a lot of people do help out, but I'm saying specifically we're used to having this role. Yeah, but I think it's a role that many that many people who are not white have. And white people, sometimes you, you guys jump on and help. <laughs> and then sometimes you think, I helped last week. Why do I need to help anymore? I helped last week. I'm not talking. I'm not talking about you. You're one of the good ones. You're not like the rest. You speak so well. It's it's the half Mexican part. There we go. That's what I always <laughs> forget. That yes. <laughs> I was trying to pay you a compliment, and then it just it just went the way it always goes with you. <laughs> I'm like Neo with the compliments. I dodge them. You do dodge them, but I'm gonna say it anyway. I'm glad you made this film. It's challenging and uncomfortable in ways. I think we need to be challenged if we're going to move forward in these conversations. So, as always, good to see you, and uh, W. Kamau Bell, thank you for the time. Thanks, Sam. our show special thanks to kelly rafferty the team at showtime and of course w kamau bell you can watch all four episodes of we need to talk about cosby now on showtime to learn more about kamau and his work visit our website at talkeasypod.com there you'll find links to our previous conversations with kamau along with other talks with people like Questlove, Werner Herzog, Janixa Bravo, Hassan Minhaj, Carol Burnett, Steven Soderbergh, Larry Wilmore, and Gloria Steinem. To hear those and more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. 
You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at TalkEasyPod. If you want to send in an email or a voice memo for our upcoming mailbag episode, you can send that to mail at TalkEasyPod.com. That's mail at TalkEasyPod.com. It's also in the description of this episode on your phone. For that mailbag episode, any comment you have, any reflection, any question, really anything you'd like to share with us or hear more about, we're open to anything. I've loved the contributions thus far and looking forward to hearing more from you. If you want to support Talk Easy by purchasing one of our mugs, they come in cream or navy, or our vinyl record with Fran Leibowitz, you can do so at talkeasypod.com shop. If you want to support the show in other ways, I say it every week, but the best thing you can do is share this show with a friend. The second best thing you can do is rate the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen. Reviewing the program on these platforms is still the best way for new listeners to find Talk Easy. As always, the show would not be possible without our incredible team. Talk Easy is produced by Caroline Reebok. Our executive producer is Janixa Bravo. Our associate producer is Caitlin Dryden. Today's talk was edited by Caitlin Dryden and mixed by Andrew Vastola. Our music is by Dylan Peck. Illustrations by Krisha Shenoy. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gaberzak, Ian Jones, Ethan Seneca, and Layla Register. Special thanks to Patrice Lee, Kaylin Ung, and Shiloh Fagan. I'd also like to thank the team at Pushkin Industries, Justin Richmond, Heather Fain, Mia LaBelle, Maggie Taylor, Nicole Morano, Maya Koenig, Carly Migliori, Jason Gambrell, Jacob Weisberg, and Malcolm Gladwell. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you back here on Sunday with the one and only... Stacey Abrams. Until then, stay safe and so long. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at T-Mobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts.